This is Gilbert Andrew Garcia. Join me on my new radio show, A Tip from Gilbert. Talk, inspiration, and prayer every Monday from 11 to 11.45 at 96.9 FM, 1360 AM, KWWJ. Or you can call in at 832-570-8075. Write me at a tip from Gilbert at gmail.com. See you then. All right, Houston, you have me, Gilbert Garcia. Talk, inspiration, and prayer. Mr. Producer, just turn that down a little bit. I found this version of Amazing Grace, and I thought it was an, ama- an amazing version of Amazing Grace. And I have one of my guests today, Mr. Chris Tomlinson. And for everybody out in cyberspace, he wrote this incredible book called Forget the Alamo. And we're going to have Mr. Tomlinson to talk a little bit about it. Chris, welcome to the show. A tip from Gilbert. Talk, inspiration, and prayer. <laughs> it's good to be here, Gar- uh, Gilbert. It, well, it's good to have you. And as we hear this song, though, I think an- enough people or not enough people really know the background of this song, Amazing Grace. I'm going to just kind of read a little bit for our viewers and listeners. It is a Christian hymn that was published in 1779. The words were written in 1772 by an English poet and Anglican Anglican clergyman named John Newton. And what's amazing about it is he was a slave owner. And he had a trouble with his boat. And essentially he almost capsized and almost lost his life. And that's when he wrote the song. Mm. And it was really a song about redemption. And I picked this song not only because it's an incredible song and I found this version of this guy that's just playing the piano like there's nobody business on the song. Mr. Producer, you can go ahead and cut it off and we'll hear it at the end. But I thought of you, Chris, because in many ways this book somehow is you coming full circle with your family's life. Because your family was involved in the slave trade business. Was that correct? That's right. I've got a, this is, this is my second book. My first book, Tomlinson Hill, was about my family's slaveholding history. And tell us about that a little bit. So um, my family is from, was, you know, from Alabama before it came to Texas, uh, Conica County, a uh, small town of Evergreen. And uh, after Texas became part of the United States in 1849, one of my relatives bought a huge amount of land along the uh, Brazos River, uh, about 15 miles south of what's now Waco, and built a plantation. He, his uh, wife convinced her uh, brother to come, and that was James Kendrick Tomlinson. And then uh, James's uh, wife convinced her brother to come, and that was a guy named Stallworth. And they had one of the largest uh, slave cotton operations uh, in Texas in the 1850s and 60s. That's incredible. How did you find that out? You know, I grew up with it. Um, You know, my grandfather uh, was a Klansman. My great-grandfather was a Klansman. Uh, My great-great-grandfather was a slaveholder. Um, And my grandfather was very proud of the fact that he was descended from slaveholders. He thought that was a big deal because it meant he was aristocracy, that the family was wealthy and powerful. Um, And he raised me to think that way, too, when I was a little kid. What's interesting is I've known you for a little while, and obviously you're a very accomplished author and a very accomplished columnist, and you've written articles about things all over the world, conflicts all over the world. no one, just meeting you, you would never guess that you had this background lineage because you seem the most open-minded, the most wonderful man. How did you, for lack of a better word, break the pattern? Well, you know, my father did. I mean, to be honest, it was my father who broke the pattern. Uh, when my grandfather would teach me these things, then he, my father would pull me aside and, and uh, make sure I understood what the civil rights movement was about, why I was being bussed into desegregated schools in Dallas in 1974. Um, you know, my, my father has this great story of being raised to be a racist. 
and going to a record shop on Mockingbird Lane in Dallas, Texas. I know Mockingbird Lane. It's right there by the airport. That's right. Yep. Uh, and he his home was on the other end from the airport in Mockingbird Lane. And in between, there was a record shop. And, and in the 50s, you went into a record shop. You got to try it. You got to put the album on a record player and put on some headphones and listen to it before you bought it. And my father describes asking the shopkeeper for something new, something different. Um, And so he handed this album to my father. My father listened to it, and it was Miles Davis. And the very first track was Kind of Blue. And my father recalls sitting in that listening booth, listening to that music, staring at Miles' face on the record jacket, and thinking there is no way someone who can make this could possibly be inferior. And that started his journey to being um, uh, pro-civil rights and an anti-racist. What an incredible story. Well, let me ask you this. Um, Like for me, I remember my grandfather. Now, my grandfather since passed, and actually my father's passed too. But I remember my grandfather, and I remember him. um, He was a, a, a Marine, and he was one of those guys that I remember working, we would fix roofs, you know, roofs. And I remember he stepped on a nail and he just sat down and got his foot up and got his hammer and just pulled out the nail and went back to work. That's the type of man my grandfather was. So I remember stories about him. I remember him vividly. Do you remember your grandfather? And do you remember sort of him and and those things? And, you know, I mean, what do you, what's your memory now? Well, you know, my father, my grandfather died when I was eight. I see. Um, And... You know, I do remember a very taciturn man. Um, he was a drinker, um, and that could be um, and that could be a problem for his family. Uh, but he was also a general contractor. He was an engineer trained at Texas A and M, graduate of the year, you know, nineteen class of nineteen eighteen. Um, and in his latter years, he had a stroke. And so my memory of him is being laid up and angry, trying to recover from a stroke. But I do remember him saying, you should be proud of your ancestors. You should be proud of this history. This makes you special. And it was what in our book, heroic, I mean, uh, forget the Alamo, we coined the term uh, heroic Anglo narrative. And the idea that there are these Anglo heroes who are responsible for Texas and everyone else plays a supporting role. And my grandfather was teaching me that. And that was what I grew up on in Texas history classes and led me to write Tomlinson Hill and Forget the Alamo as a, as a corrective. I think it is so amazing. I know we have a quick call. One of the things we always do is we have a pastor or someone call in to say a prayer for Houston. And in these days, we need them more than ever, right, Chris? So do we have, uh, is the bishop there? Bishop, can you hear me? Yes. Bishop. I can, most definitely, I can most definitely hear you. How are you, each of you today? Bishop, it's so great to hear your voice. I'm with my guest, Mr. Chris Tomlinson, and he's got some incredible things to say. But Bishop, you know, in these times, whether it's the struggles we have in Washington, this all this madness going on, COVID, it's so easy to lose faith. It's just so easy to fall into that trap. Would you please say a prayer and just spend a minute about that and say a prayer for us all in Houston and throughout the world, Bishop? It would mean so much to me. I concur with you wholeheartedly. Buenos tardes, señores y señoritas. Buenos días, señores y señoritas. ¿Cómo está? Está bien. Glorios Dios. Let us go before the throne of grace. Houston. Surrounding areas. Texas. Other 49 states. North South America. The blue ball, I pray for you. Specifically for this geography, I pray you. I pray a way for you. I pray that destiny doors open for you, O Heavenly Father, as we humble ourselves before you in a spirit of thanksgiving. 
coming boldly before your throne of grace as your dear children. I pray an intercessory prayer, Father, for we, your children, and we, the people of this great state, this foot largest city in America. I pray blessings and breakthroughs. I pray healing and deliverance. I pray for our military, each branch. I pray for our government, the White House, our house. I pray, Abba Father, for divine favor, that divine favor will remember us, that scepters be extended to each and every one of us. Oh, I pray. Father, I pray that angels of yours will continue to be encamped around us, mayors, city council members, new to be appointed and elected council members with visions that are inclusive of your word your will and your way father open up doors for the innovation that even this your manservant gilbert is bringing to the fore i pray that goodness and mercy will follow him into leadership as it's following your word your will and your way that the joy of you O Elohim, our Lord, be our strength, I pray. I pray a way for each of us to create synergy, to come together as one. I pray that each of us believers, particularly who are not only believers, but receivers, prosper in all things, and that we be in good health in spite of any pandemic that we prosper even as our souls prosper as you promised to us in third john verse 2 says i pray father ways for each of us to innovate with creative ideas and witty inventions open doors for us father open doors where there were no doors. More ups than downs, I pray for we. I pray for each guest that's come on this brilliant, bright, and abundantly blessed broadcast. I pray your love for each one in the background. I pray your love for our brother, leader, Gilbert. I pray, Father, your agape love. I pray your power to envelop us, and particularly this great leader, Yahweh, your power, exhibited to your son and residing with us via your Holy Spirit, I pray love and light, your enlightenment. I pray joy for strength for each of us. I pray divine protection and divine direction. I pray for rejuvenation and regeneration. I pray for illumination and then elevation for the renewing of our minds and the transforming of our spirits. I pray an empowerment of our hearts. Oh, Father, I pray. I pray bright days, more bright days than imbalanced days. I pray restful nights, not just sleep. I, I pray, yes, that goodness and mercy, those twins from Psalms 23, 
will follow us all the days of our lives. I pray that the angels, the angels that you have assigned that are kept around about us will hear us speak your word, your will, and your way and become more activated than ever before, just hearing your words come alive again in us. I pray, oh, Heavenly Father, for each and every listener on this broadcast, every leaning and listening heart and hear, ear, spirit, soul, body, finance, here, now and later, here. I pray vision and voice be amplified through this broadcast even. I pray vision, voice, and the ultimate victory be ours here and now. Faith and mercy, grace and goodness. I pray courage increased strength for the journey ahead that we can stand together as one. That whatever we are going through, we realize that we're on the other side of through now. That wherever we are right now, it is good. It is well with our soul. I pray that nothing will overcome us because we have you inside us, making us overcome us. In Yeshua's name, I pray, closing with Psalms 91, Psalms 46, Isaiah 60, Isaiah 43, 2 and 3, Romans 8, 28, Psalms 23 and 27. I pray those and Yeshua Hamasit's holy name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bishop, thank you for that wonderful prayer. I'm hugging you yes. over cyberspace. Uh, I, I receive it. <laughs> thank you, Pastor. <laughs> We're going to come back, Houston. Thank you, Pastor, to Mr. Chris Tomlinson. And Chris, let's go back for a second because it took a lot of courage, in my opinion, to write the books that you wrote. Have you, I mean, have you been received to sort of talk about these things that are part of your history, but to talk about where we are today? I mean, how's that, how's that been? Well, you know, uh, one of the things that's really kind of heartened me is that the way readers responded to the book really depended upon their generation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, and frankly, um, their ethnicity and, and their place in society. Um, when Tomlinson Hill came out, um, it was my attempt to uh, have a truth, a personal truth and reconciliation commission. I had covered the uh, end of apartheid in South Africa. I had met uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu. I'd seen uh, the good work that he did in bringing people together because he understood that only when all the truths are shared and we all share a common history that we can agree on is the only way we're going to have reconciliation and peace and love in our society. Um, And so, you know, I found that older white people in a position of power um, in Central Texas were very angry about my book. I challenged the idea of the good slaveholder. I painstakingly destroyed the idea that you could be a good slaveholder and the idea that they didn't know any better or that they somehow were ignorant of what they were doing by enslaving other people. Uh, Forget the Alamo, my more recent book, um, Texas Traditionalists, people who are caught up in, in the Alamo myth and the idea of the revolution, whose identity is tied to the idea that that the white people who came to Texas were fighting for liberty. Um, they're upset because I, my co-authors, Brian Burrow, Jason Stanford, and myself pretty much destroy the idea 
that they were fighting for liberty. They were fighting for the right to hold slaves because that was the main conflict they had with Mexico. So let's talk about that because I, I want to go back to a word you said, but I wrote it down because I'm going to come back to it because I, I, it just struck me in today's times about critical race theory. So we're, we're going to come back to that. Um, but what I wanted to ask you is, so the book, I think the book is fascinating. And when I think of the Alamo, because, you know, I'm just one of those young kids that grew up and I watched TV and I remember John Wayne and how brave he was and Richard, was it Richard Widmark who was there yep. and there was Jim Bowie and he was hurt and he was just waiting and I forgot Colonel Travis who played Colonel Travis and he drew the line in the sand and whoever doesn't want to stay crossed this line and nobody crossed the line. Is any of that true? Uh, most of it's not. Is that, I mean, how most could, of it is not true. I mean, how irresponsible for, for, I mean, maybe that's what Hollywood does with every story because that's the story that we think. And that's now, I guess, what we think and, and visualize in the textbooks and, and sort of our history. Well, no, it wasn't, it wasn't just uh, John Wayne and Hollywood and Walt Disney. Uh, it was the founders of the Texas Republic. It was Sam Houston. You know, Sam Houston developed. The, uh, the lies about the Alamo within 72 hours of learning that the Alamo had fallen. He had ordered um, Bowie to, and Travis to abandon the Alamo, to bring those troops and those cannons back to where he was. Um, they were sticking around because it was winter and they didn't expect Santa Ana to invade until the grass was growing later in the spring for the cavalry. It was a blunder. And Sam Houston didn't even believe Travis's letters. He didn't think there really was a Mexican army, and that's why he didn't send reinforcements. So when that 100 or 200 people died, were, were, were killed in the battle, Sam Houston made up this idea that they were somehow slowing down the Mexican army, that they were somehow... Uh, like the Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae. Yep. That was invented by Sam Houston within 72 hours after what was a huge military blunder. Was the motive to, like, get his troops rallied and ready for the ultimate battle? I mean, oh, absolutely. Was that the whole thing, to, to rally the troops? Well, when news broke that the Alamo had fallen, uh, Sam Houston's army began fleeing. They began deserting. Uh, all the all the Anglo families were packing up their uh, their belongings and making a rush for the Louisiana border. Uh, we call it the runaway scrape, and that's what Sam Houston was trying to fight against. So he came up. He took advantage of the racist ideas of the period and said, "Look, a bunch of brown people just killed all these no noble white people. It's our job to take revenge." And that's why you get the call, Remember the Alamo. Very interesting. I know we have a caller. Caller, are you there? Did you have a question for me, Gilbert, a tip from Gilbert, or our guest, Mr. Chris Tomlinson? Oh, hi, yes. Um, I have a question for Mr. Tomlinson. Sure. Uh, I wanna, yes, I wanted to ask, um, what are some of the obstacles you faced when putting out these kind of books that, you know, share the truth about what really happened? Um, what has come, like, the pushback that you have gotten? Thank you for that question. Chris, what do you think? Well, you know, uh, both of the books uh, were New York Times bestsellers for one week, but one week is all you need uh, to, to make that claim uh, to be on the list. Um, you know, with Tomlinson Hill, I had um, a lot of the Sons of the Confederate Veterans uh, group uh, condemned my book. Uh, they went to social media to, to condemn me um, with Forget the Alamo. Uh, a guy named Jerry Patterson, the former land commissioner, uh, who is a traditionalist through and through, who, frankly, in the latter part of the book, um, we exposed being, uh, being bamboozled uh, about uh, a collection that Phil Collins, the rock star, gave to, um, to the Alamo while he was land commissioner. And, you know, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick um, canceled our scheduled appearance at the uh, Bullock State History Museum in Austin uh, just hours before we were to speak. And he said that he didn't want, um, he didn't want uh, anyone to uh, say bad things about the Alamo in a state facility, which was, you know, a clear violation of our First Amendment rights. Um, so, you know, there is a right wing that is committed to 
white supremacy that will con- that's condemned both books. And I kind of consider that a badge of honor. Well, well, you know, I, I think it is. It really is. But let's come back to something. I appreciate the question out there. So forget the Alamo. Go back to the role slavery played. If I'm not mistaken from the book, it was, you know, slavery was outlawed in Mexico. Yeah. Back when they uh, won their independence from Spain, I guess. And then that's really what this was all about. Can you just go into that for our listeners here? Sure. And it's a complicated story, right? Because uh, when when uh, Moses Austin received his land grant, Spain was still in power. But by the time Stephen F. Austin actually shows up with the colonists who were bringing with them enslaved people, Mexico has won its independence. And in the, in the National Assembly in Mexico City and in the Constitution, it is all about uh, all people are, equa- are, are created equal. It was actually a far more progressive constitution. And it was an egalitarian dream for the Republic of Mexico to have all races, all people uh, treated equally. Can you imagine that? I mean... No one, I think, really knows that, that somehow they were ahead of us. And this whole concept of everybody's equal and freedom, I didn't mean to throw off your train of thought, but who would have ever thought Mexico would have been ahead of us? Well, you know, you don't learn that in uh, in uh, Texas history, do you? By design. By design. By design. And we'll come by back design. to critical race theory. But keep going. I didn't mean to throw um, off your train of thought. Well, you know, and then, you know, frankly, the Tejanos, the wealthy uh, uh Mexicans in, Tex- in, in what was then part of Mexico, Texas was a legally part of sovereign Mexican territory. Uh, the Tejanos in San Antonio and, and the political elite were like, hey, listen, we need, we need these Anglos. We need these Americanos and gringos to come here and settle this land and create commerce. Mm-hmm. And the only way to create commerce is through growing cotton and the only way you make money growing cotton is with enslaved people. So they negotiated a deal where the people who brought slaves to Texas would be allowed to keep them for a little while. But eventually, slavery would have to be phased out in Texas. This is part of the Federalist Constitution of Mexico. And this was why you still had Anglos come to Texas and bring their slaves for about another eight years. So what, where am I now in time? So about 1829, um, after um, the Anglos have basically ignored all efforts to phase out slavery, mm-hmm. the Mexican uh, National Assembly begins to lose patience. And then they begin passing laws saying not only, um, you know, are we ending slavery? You're not allowed to bring slaves. And we're also going to cut off Americans. We are tired of these white people coming to Texas with their slaves and defying our Constitution and failing to convert to Catholicism, failing to learn Spanish, failing to obey the Mexican government. And so in 1829, you begin to see, you begin to see Mexico City crack down and say, hey, enough is enough. It's time to end slavery, and it's time to end this immigration. And that's when we begin to see the uh, Anglos begin to organize to to revolt. Let's hold that thought. I know we have another caller. And by the way, we're here every Monday, 11 to 11.45 on KWWJ. Keep walking with Jesus at 1360 AM, 96.9 FM. Talk, inspiration, and prayer. And again, you can always call at 832-570-8075 or write me at a tip from Gilbert. No dots, no nothing. A tip from Gilbert at gmail.com. We have another caller. Is there another caller there for our guest or for me? Go ahead, caller. Yes. Hi. How are you? We're great. That's good. I have a question for Mr. Tomlinson. Hit us. So in your book, Forget the Alamo, was there (laughs) anything that you had to edit out about the myths or did you want to keep everything in there and kind of expose everything that was wrong about it and what was said that was wrong about it? Well, yeah, we, um, you know, the book is basically a play in three acts. And so we have the revolution and the fall of the Alamo and San Jac- the Battle of San Jacinto in the first third of the book. The second third of the book is about how uh, these myths were created, 
who created them, why they created them. We break them down. For instance, the idea of a line in the sand was introduced in 1883 by a complete fantasist uh, who dreamt it up out of his imagination. So, so way after the Alamo Oh, 50 itself. years. Yeah, it was 50 wow. years after the Alamo that this idea that there was a line in the sand came to, uh, and, and it was published as a letter to the editor in a newspaper. But so many people loved the story that they didn't care that it was a lie, and they started putting it in textbooks. And it became part of the story of the Alamo. And that's just one of many examples of these myths. And, and, and so we wanted to show the reader how the myth was created. And then, of course, the last third of the book is about uh, Chicano historians beginning in the 40s and the 50s and then accelerating in the 1960s to challenge these myths, to challenge this heroic Anglo narrative and to explain that Texas history is a lot more complicated and history than and, and interesting than you might think. That is fascinating. Um, caller, any other follow-up or anything there? Oh, no, that was perfect. Thank you so much for explaining that. And thank you for giving us the true stories about everything and exposing kind of what was wrong with how media portrayed it. Uh, well, thank you for calling. You're here with a tip from Gilbert, Talk, Inspiration, and Prayer. You know, Chris, it all goes back to you made a statement about all truths need to be shared. I guess that's what uh, Bishop Tutu said. And my, my view is, you know, the, the whole thing of all truths need to be shared, it's not being shared right now, is it? And that goes back to this. I mean, who invented critical race theory? That's something I just started hearing about. I mean, who invented that term? Probably the same guy that invented the here's the line, you know. I mean, I mean who invented that theory? Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's you know, critical race theory, it, it's a real thing. It goes back to the 1980s. It was a, an intellectual exercise that came out of law school that basically said, you know what, you know, we had – slavery, then we had Jim Crow, we had organized, systemic, racist discrimination against people of color up, you know, that was legally authorized up until 1965, uh, with the beginning of the civil rights legislation. But we didn't change our systems. We just kept the same systems in place. And those systems were built on this idea that white people were to be privileged and people of color were to be disadvantaged. And critical race theory says, hey, okay, we have a law, we have a laws, we have these laws that say we can't do this anymore, but we still have this stuff embedded in institutions that still have a racist effect on our society. And maybe we should do something about them. Well, this has become you know, some right-wingers a couple of years ago decided to turn this into the latest bugaboo, the latest uh, boogeyman mm -hmm. from the left that's out to destroy American society. And 99% of the people who use critical race theory or CRT don't even know what it means, don't even know what it set out to explain. And, and so it's just, a, it's just a bludgeon for the right to beat up on people who actually think we should treat everyone equally. Put me in that 99%. I don't, I don't really know what it means. All I know is one thing. As a citizen, I want my kids to know the truth. I want them to know what happened in history. I want them to know um, and whether our history is something we should be ashamed of or not. The bottom line, if it's our history, it's ours. And we should talk about it. And if there are elements of it that we are embarrassed about, let's just make sure it doesn't happen again. Isn't that really what this should all be about? Let's learn from it so just things don't happen again. Well, you know, I, you know, you know, the caller mentioned, uh, you know, the media, and I, I am a columnist for the Houston Chronicle. I have been a journalist for 25 years. I've covered nine wars, and uh, I've reported from 50 countries around the world. Um, and one of the things I've learned is that, you know, we see the world basically through a soda straw. If you've ever looked through a soda straw, that's, that's our understanding of, of – that's what we see in terms of the larger world. And so we need to come together. We need to hear other people's stories. We need to allow people to say, okay, well, that worked for you, 
But I was on the other end of that, and it wasn't so good for me. Mm-hmm. And and that's what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission set out to do. That's what I do in, in Tomlinson Hill, is I go find the descendants of my family's enslaved people, and I hear their stories, and I gather their history. And while in my family, all my ancestors were heroic, guess what? You know, the black Tomlinsons, the descendants of the slaves my family held— they had slightly different opinions about my ancestors than my family did. And I wanted to hear those stories. I wanted to share those stories. And in Tomlinson Hill, I use huge block quotes to let these people tell their own story rather than be, have it filtered through me. And, um, and you know what? It's, it's this idea. What is the purpose of history? What is the purpose of sharing our stories? Is it to you know, justify the... The, the theft of Texas from the sovereign government of Mexico? Is it to justify slavery? Are these stories to justify the huge crimes against humanity that our ancestors did against people of color in this country? Or is it as you say, are we gonna learn the truth so we can learn from our ancestors' mistakes? That's the, um, you know, that's see that that's the, my that, that's, that, that, that was that's the Lord the, intervening, saying it's about the truth. That's that, that yeah. That's 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 the right wing screaming in horror yeah, at the listen, idea what are you of doing, learning Gilbert? the truth. Yeah, what are you doing there, Gilbert? That's right. No, I think it should be obvious. You're like an American hero. <laughs> no. no, you really are because this takes courage. It takes courage because you don't know how. I'm making this up, but you don't know how your colleagues are going to accept it in the in the newspaper business. You don't know if this is going to cost you your your job. You don't you don't know. You don't know if people are going to view you differently, and you don't know if you're going to have a target on your back now. I mean, that takes courage, and I think it needs to be said. So l- let's go back for a second. So this is probably the silliest question of all. I guess this book is not making it into any libraries in the public schools. Is that Fair to say? Uh, no, I mean it. It is. Uh, is no it? one's no one's banned it yet. No um, one's banned. Oh my goodness! Let's be quiet then. They will. I shouldn't uh, say that because it needs to be there. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I'm. I, I'm. No, I'm sure it will be. I mean, I, I'll tell you one thing. It's definitely not for sale in the Alamo uh, gift shop. <laughs> um, but there, there you go. But no, is it? In, is it in some of the schools? Do we know? You know, I, I I do know that it is in some school libraries. I'm not going to don't highlight say, don't them. Say, and don't say uh, yeah. And I don't want to get any librarians in trouble. Uh, but, you know, we have hundreds of uh, end notes. You know, we rely on professional historians. You know, we didn't make this stuff up, right? The one thing we did do was do some in-depth investigation in the present day. And what was something I think most people missed was that when we talked to San Antonians, you know, um, Tejanos, uh, Chicanos, about their experience with the Alamo, again, you know, white people go there and think, oh, my God, my people are heroes. And then uh, Hispanics come away from visiting the Alamo thinking, oh, my God, my ancestors were villains. And they really weren't villains, by the way. You know, the Mexican soldiers who fought and died at the Alamo were fighting for their country. They were great Mexican patriots, and they should be respected as such. But that's not the story we we teach. And so, you know, all these people talking about the trauma that the Alamo myth has had on their lives and their sense of selves, uh, it um, it was a surprise to me, and I think it's an important example of why we have to all share our stories somehow it seems like we're not we're not past this history yet you know it seems to be the origin still of so many issues and and so much angst and when you think about the politics and how divided we are and all the it seems in many ways we haven't come to terms with this history and this is precisely why everybody needs to read the book well no just to come to terms with it no we haven't i mean we we have absolute as a nation we have never had that truth and reconciliation effort right we have never you know most um you know i still meet people anglos white people today who also know that their ancestors were slaveholders and they still think that somehow their ancestors were the good slaveholders. 
I, I think I'm the only person out there who, who talks about my ancestors being bad slaveholders, right? Well, what's interesting is, and what's that right, the, the correct word, oxymoron, could there be such a thing as a good slaveholder? No! Because by definition, if you're, if you're preventing people from being free... The amount e- of it, violence it, it takes to enforce yeah. slavery is appalling. Yeah. It is horrifying. It is beyond what most people today understand. You know, 12 Years a Slave goes in, the book uh, goes into it quite explicitly. If you read the slave narratives, uh, the, the stories collected from former slaves about what they experienced on the plantations, no, there's no way you can ever imagine there's such a good thing as a good slave. There can't be. It just cannot be. Cannot Well, be. you know, I saw that movie... Um, Birth of a Nation. Oh, it's so powerful. Uh, and how they treated the slave. It was just so powerful. Uh, do we have another caller there, though, producer? I hear all kinds of phones ringing and this and that. <laughs> I just don't know if that's a call or just lots of people saying, what is going on with that book? Uh, do, do we have a caller there? No? Well, okay, we're going to keep going because I know there's just all kinds of uh, phone ringing. But going back, what's, where do you go from here now? What's left... And Chris Tomlinson and the reconciliation of, of Chris. You know, you wrote about your family. You wrote about the Alamo. What's your next project that closes the circle of this? Well, you know... Um, Have you thought of that? I mean, I, I, I am. And I'm, I'm still refining some ideas. Um, I think, obviously, you know, the big question, the, the, the big thing that, that our nation, that Texas is going through, that the nation is going through, is that, you know... Texas is only 41% Anglo now, non, non-Hispanic Anglo. Um, and, you know, in 20 years, the entire country will be majority minority. Our nation is finally living up to the promise that what matters here is not the color of your skin or where you were born, but who you are as an individual. Well. As a person of color, because obviously I'm Hispanic, um, I can't help but to think, I love what you're hearing, but from our lens, we don't feel it. We don't feel like the word, we're the majority. Not yet. From our lens, all we see is whether it's the whole city council, whether it's all the different boards, the commissions, board of directors, all the big corporations, all the you know, all the power staff, no matter what where it is, government, private sector, all we see primarily are white males. And it's almost like, when is it gonna be our turn? Well, it's 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 a it's a generational issue, right? I mean, for people over sixty, Anglos are still the vast majority in Texas. For people under 20, though, it's uh, 80% Hispanic. It's 80% people of color in, in, most, uh, in, most, in most cities. Um, there is there's this bubble that's moving through, and that's why the working title in my next book, I'm calling it The End of White Rule. You know, that was a phrase that we used in uh, South Africa to describe the end of apartheid, the, 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 the moment at which the black majority was able to win power in South Africa through the ballot box. Um, it's going to be more gradual here, but, bef- but you know, you and I are still relatively young men. We are going to witness the end of white rule in our lifetime. And I think that's, a, that's why we have this conflict over critical race theory. This is why we have the rise of white nationalists and, 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 and malicious is because for a lot of people, this is a very uncomfortable transition. We have another caller, if you don't mind, Chris. Go ahead. Let's put in. We have another caller there. And I'm being mindful yes, of time. Uh, this is your friend, Bishop Enrique from, from Spain. How are you? Bishop, how are you? I'm doing okay. What about you? I'm very, very happy with uh, today's program. Well, I appreciate it. Do you have a question for Mr. Chris Tomlinson? It's an extraordinary topic, isn't it, Bishop? It, it is, you know, one of the reasons why I'm calling is because I was, uh, you know, watching, uh, you know, the, the the program through Facebook, you know, very effectively, and uh, and I was first of all, in, you know, I was, wow, is this is this true what this, uh, you know, friend is saying? And then, you know, when he gave all the facts, I say yes, the truth is coming forth, and that's one of the things that I like it, you know, because you know the truth always have to be forth. The, First, you know, the, the truths have to be said all the time, no matter what. 
And I'm just very happy that he's brave enough. He has all the courage, you know, just to go ahead and, and open the eyes of people, which is very important, you know, because we, you know, we need to uh, stop lying and we have to, get, to go against lies so that everything should be said, you know, exactly as he, as he were. And especially for one reason, that's another reason that I, that I found is that, you know, it's bringing value to people that has been involved in many situations that were considered, you know, uh, you know, the ones that were defeated or the ones that were wrong. You know, when we bring truth to the, to the right arena, what really happens is that everybody, you know, recovers the self-esteem that everybody, every race and every person should have on earth. Well, Bishop, we're going to leave it there. I'm hugging you on the phone, calling all the way from Spain. I just really, really appreciate when you call in. You know, uh, Chris, there's that old Carol Burnett show when at the end it has that song, I'm so glad we had that time together. Would you believe it's already it's already time? That's shocking. Isn't it? Now, what we're going to do is we're going to close out on the radio station right here in 30 seconds. And if you don't mind, we're going to spend another four or five minutes on all the social media platforms. So... Houston, here comes Amazing Grace, a beautiful piano version. And in case you don't remember, it's Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Written by a gentleman who had a, he was a slave owner, and again, uh, had a moment of reflection and redemption through this song that he wrote all the way back in the late 1700s. Thank you, KWWJ listeners. Keep walking with Jesus. Be here next week on a tip from Gilbert, and we'll see you next time. Facebook, stay with me and all my media, social media platforms. So now let's go ahead and uh, turn that music down. We're going to spend a few more minutes. We're now on Facebook and everything else, Chris. You know, you mentioned something about South Africa. What was it like being there? Were you there during apartheid when you were covering things in the country? I, I got there in uh, 1993. It was um, first work as a journalist. I was an editorial assistant to a Japanese newspaper, which meant that I basically ran errands and did a little reporting, did a few photographs. Um, but yeah, no, we, uh, apartheid was still in effect, uh, though Nelson Mandela was out of prison and they were planning the election. And um, within, you know, two years, they were basically going from um, a, an authoritarian, totalitarian white minority uh, regime to, a, uh, to an elected republic. And has it worked, Chris, in your opinion? Is sharing of power there? Is it, is it I mean, it's got to be working, but is it still work in progress? Well, I think every democracy is a work in progress. I mean, the United States is a work in progress. Work in progress. Um, the, you know, it, it, it's not, it, the work is never over. I will say that in terms of in writing, you know, the South African constitution is far more, uh, broad in terms of guaranteeing rights for everyone. You know, LGBTQ people in South Africa, their rights are written into no the Constitution. Kidding. And this is from post-apartheid, or more recent Constitution. That's right. This, okay. this, was the, uh, this is the post-apartheid. This yep. was the Constitution they adapted uh, when uh, the new government came to power. Now, do they still have problems with demagogic leaders who are anti-democratic or more interested in power than taking care of the people. Well, I think every democracy has that mm -hmm. problem, and, and South Africa does certainly have it. Um, you know, economic justice is still um, the biggest challenge for South Africa and, frankly, for even the United States today. Uh, finding a way to make sure that uh, political power uh, extends down to economic equity is 
is a challenge I haven't seen any country um, conquer, fix. Conquer, yeah, yeah. fix. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, Chris. I want to make sure people know, where can they get the book Forget the Alamo? Uh, you know, the you can get it at any bookstore, uh, any online uh, location. I, you know, like to support local bookstores, local independent bookstores. Uh, it's at Brazos Books here in Houston and all the other bookstores here. You can get it on Amazon. Um, it's uh, it's available anywhere books are sold. And then what about, also, tell us again the first book again. So there's Forget the Alamo, and the first one is called Tomlinson Hill. Tomlinson Hill, which was the name of my family's plantation, and it is still a... Uh, it's still a reunion grounds in uh, Falls County, uh, in Texas. Does your family Marlin. does your family go there for reunions? No, not well. I mean, what what do you mean by reunion grounds? It's uh, it's got a it's got a big picnic shed, and it was the and the big the big uh, reunion grounds was built by my family for Confederate veterans in the late eighteen hundreds. Uh, today, it's used for the Falls County Republican Party 4th of July uh, barbecue. And uh, the black side of my family, um, the black Tomlinsons, also meet there in the summertime. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a county park. I think it's just amazing. Your, your family story is amazing. Um, I so am grateful that you would share it with us here today and share it with Houston. I'm going to give you the last word right after this. So this is Talk, Inspiration, and Prayer. We have Mr. Chris Tomlinson, who is probably one of the most incredible persons I have met. He writes for the Chronicle, but he has written for many different papers. He's been 50 countries. He's been all over the world. He's been writing about conflict and wars. He's, he's been everywhere. And he wrote two books, Tomlinson Hill and Forget the Alamo, really about uh, his family's history and the role of slavery and what it played in Texas history, primarily in the myth of the Alamo. And so you can always hear us on KWWJ 1360 AM, 96.9 FM, from 11 to 11.45. Of course, all this is on um, all the different platforms, social media. It's stored. It's called A Tip from Gilbert, Talk, Inspiration, and, play, and Prayer. Thank you to the callers that called in, 832-570-8075. I know the phone was ringing earlier. Please call again next week, A Tip from Gilbert at gmail.com. Coming up, I'm going to have uh, a couple of different uh, speakers. I have Cambrell Marshall, who we all know him, and, and he's beloved here in Houston. I've got Judson Robinson, the head of the uh, Urban League. I've got a young lady that does a whole lot of things to save pets and pet care and uh, pet emergencies and so forth. So it's going to be continued good activity all month long. So, Chris, I want to give you the last word. So what do you want to say to Houston and what do you want to leave them with right now? Um, you know, the journey never ends, uh, but um, it's... Um it's 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 a journey worth taking and that's what life's about a journey worth taking ladies and gentlemen we will see you next time on a tip from gilbert this is gilbert andrew garcia join me on my new radio show a tip from gilbert talk inspiration and prayer every monday from 11 to 11 45 at 96.9 fm 1360 am kwwj or you can call in at 832 832- 570-8075. Write me at a tip from Gilbert at gmail.com. See you then.